Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockford. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. China is a country that almost needs no introduction. It boasts thousands of years of continuous history and culture, though its continuity as a civilization has often been marred by internal conflict among warlords and rival factions. In recent history, after the defeat of the Japanese invaders in 1945 and the expulsion of the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, to Taiwan, its communist roots firmly took hold under Mao Zedong's leadership, formerly beginning in 1949. Deng Xiaoping led and championed China's significant economic reforms from the late 1970s through his death in 1997. China joined the WTO in 2001, and its GDP has grown, on average, at 9.5% year-over-year, bringing an estimated 800 million of its nearly 1.4 billion population out of poverty. At the same time, China's socialism with Chinese characteristics, as led and directed by the Chinese Communist Party, recently culminated in the most significant adversarial standoff between China and the U.S. and its allies in memory. From its Belt and Road Initiative to its Made in China 2025 plan, to say that China under the Communist Party is ambitious, strong, and confident is an understatement. Today we are joined by James Moore, a former senior government consultant to the Entrepreneurship and Innovation Bureau in Hangzhou, Zhejiang Province, China. He was the first foreigner to hold such a position in Zhejiang Province. Moore was responsible for various research, policy, and economic development projects. He has lived in Asia for over 10 years, working in the retail, consulting, and government sectors. He has personally set up and run four wholly-owned foreign enterprises in China, and currently sits on the board of a global firm based in Salt Lake City. He holds a BA in Chinese from the Brigham Young University and a PhD from Zhejiang University in Entrepreneurship Management. James and his wife are the proud parents of four children, with one on the way. James, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. James, welcome to the podcast. Let's kick things off by having you tell us a little bit about how you chose your current career path and how is it that you ended up in China? Great question. Kind of a long story. I'll give you the, the short version, but uh, it, it all kind of began when I was called to serve a mission in Taiwan for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, during that time, I gained a great, a, just a really deep regard for the Chinese people and their culture and language. Um, you know, After I returned home, I wanted to keep focusing my career and, and opportunities um, that are 
that were continually growing in Asia. And so I wanted to see what I could do there. Uh, so I continued to study Chinese at Brigham Young University and then later was recruited by a company in LA that had large retail operations in China and worked for them for several years. Eventually, I switched industries and took a job with a global quality assurance firm. Uh, and I worked with some big brand retailers there like Ikea, Costco, and Macy's. Uh, and around that time, though, I kind of became an expert in setting up and managing wholly foreign-owned enterprises and local companies in China. And uh, one of them grew to a multi-million dollar business, and so that was a good thing. Uh, with with that experience, though, of setting these companies up, I began partnering with the CEO and others to create five other companies slash divisions within the organization, now, four of which were unsuccessful, but one of them grew to another multi-million dollar business unit, and that was also a positive thing. And these kinds of entrepreneurial experiences were the catalyst that led me to to uh, obtain a PhD in entrepreneurship at Zhejiang University. And that academic experience is what actually led me to work for the Chinese government there in Hangzhou. Um, and as you know, you know, to work for the Chinese government, it's uh, foreigners don't really have that opportunity very much because typically you need to be Chinese or a member of the Communist Party or not necessarily a member of the party, but most of them are. Um, I'm obviously neither. Um, yet in a rather innovative stunt to bring talent back home from abroad, the Chinese government kind of sidestepped tradition and offered a kind of three-year leadership program in the form of a consulting role. And if you completed it successfully, the government would then integrate you into a more formal government career track. Um, the interview process was really crazy, to say the least, and won't bore you with that. But um, I don't think I or they thought a Caucasian would make it to the final rounds because it was all in Chinese. But in the end, I was fortunate enough to receive the offer. And my wife and I thought long and hard about it because the U.S. Um, trade war had just began to develop, and uh, you know we had a much higher paying job at the time. And uh, but we saw these increasing tensions between these two large superpowers, and we thought, well, maybe we can help, and maybe we can see if we can help these two places get along, at least in some areas, and find some win-wins. Because uh, you know, it's, as these two countries if they become increasingly more contentious, uh, it's not good for the whole world. And so we, with that in mind, we tried to jump in with both feet and see if we could do some good. And uh, it was a great experience for my family. Uh, we learned a lot that we couldn't have learned in any other way. Um, I always made it my principle that I wouldn't do anything that didn't help both parties in which I was engaging with achieve win-wins. And uh, I think I was able to accomplish that. Um, you know, I tried to just be a bridge as much as I could between these foreign organizations that were interested in China and the local government and helping them find synergistic ways to work together. Uh, but due to the initial outbreak of uh, COVID-19 in China my and my and my wife's pregnancy, we just, I decided, you know, um, my family's more important at this point. And so I decided to resign and take my wife and children to the USA for the birth of our fifth child. And so that's kind of where my journey started and now where it's kind of um, here now and we'll see what the what the future holds for us. James, you had uh, a real boots on the ground view of uh, China's business environment uh, pre-COVID and during COVID. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, about what you saw in Zhejiang province uh, compared to the rest of the country and then um, how that started to change um, in late 19 or, or early 20? Yeah, so uh, pre-COVID, uh, things were 
difficult between the U.S. and China, obviously, with the trade war. Um, so, I mean, I personally started working with, you know, fewer organizations from the U.S. since the the trade war had begun and, and escalated. Uh, but there was still, you know, business was was booming for the most part, and in, in at least in Zhejiang Province, um, still quite a bit of foreign investment and um, the foreign companies that were there were that at least that I was uh, associated with or had some connections with seemed to be doing very well. Um, at least if they, you know, the ones that were dealing specifically with the U.S. China market struggled because of the trade war, but others uh, seemed to be doing well. Um, but then after COVID nineteen, as you're aware, U.S. China relations, you know, became even worse, even less investment from a U.S. side, and. Uh, you know, most foreign firms uh, in China were shut down for a period of time, uh, which was not positive for business, obviously. And uh, but I mean, now things have resumed um, for the most part, and people are getting back to work. But it's kind of the new normal, you know, like 30, 40, 50 percent less uh, work or revenue than they used to have. And so, you know, post-COVID, things aren't good, and China may be going into a recession at some point if they're not already there. Um, so, uh, things post COVID are much worse than they were pre COVID. Um, but I, I still think there's opportunities for companies that are currently there in China or companies that want to, uh, invest or enter China. James, I'd like to talk a little bit about the division of labor between different levels of the Chinese government. How do provincial and local governments, and for, for that matter, the, the national government, uh, split up the work when it comes to business and and fostering entrepreneurship. So, Fred, that's a really good question, um, and not something that people are very familiar with when they're entering the China market. But is something important for everyone to know that wants to do business in China. So, most people are aware that China is just like the U.S. is uh, made up of a bunch of states. You, China is made up of provinces, and these provinces are like our states. Um, they're made up of cities, and these cities are then made up of districts. Uh, so, this um, division that they have is important to note because it's in the district at the local levels where the rubber hits the road, um, because at the district level is where you're going to register your business. It's where you're going to pay your taxes. And obviously, some of those taxes will go to the city and to the province. But but at the district level, those are the people who you're going to be working with. And uh, when you have any issues, um, you're going to be working with the local leaders there in, in, the, in the district. So it's really important to know um, – and make sure that you're in a good district for your business. And, and, you know, I'll just add this for entrepreneurs or for those that are wanting to enter China. Um, a suggestion that I would have for you is, is to just remember that China's, you know, it kind of has three major regional economies. It has one in the north with the Hebei, Beijing, Tianjin area. It has one kind of central on the East Coast, Central, with uh, Hangzhou, Shanghai, and uh, Suzhou, that kind of area. That's called the Yangtze River Delta, if you've heard that thrown around before. And then there's one in the South, uh, which is the Pearl River Delta by Guangzhou and Shenzhen. And those are the three major 
uh, regional economies and the drivers of the Chinese economy. And so if you are to enter China, I recommend getting close to one of those main economic drivers because so much of China's money uh, infrastructure and investments are in those areas. Um, but then once you've selected the region in which you want to attack, now you got to choose a city. Um, a lot of people often will think of Beijing, Shanghai, or Shenzhen, but those are first-tier cities and very competitive, very um, crammed, uh, saturated with all sorts of businesses and industries. And so they're usually more expensive. And because everybody wants to be there, you you know, there's no reason for the government for the most part to try to attract various labor or or companies to come because everybody already wants to be there. So they're not really spending their money that way. But um, just outside of those first tier cities, you usually have these second tier cities. And these second tier cities are very interesting because they're ambitious. They want to become a first tier city. And they're spending lots of their tax dollars on trying to incentivize businesses to come and set up there, whether it's foreign or local. And uh, you'll find you'll probably get a lot better deal in terms of a company setup, maybe a tax break in some of these uh, second tier cities than you would in these first tier cities. And I, I would even go further to make one more distinction that I think there's actually a middle level there between um, the first tier city and second tier city. I would call it an emerging first tier city category, kind of a new category. And these are cities that are, you know, 10 million plus people, um, very robust uh, uh, subway systems, uh, high speed railway systems. Um, lots of in infrastructure, Fortune 500, um, but they're you know they're not the size of the mega cities like Shanghai and Beijing where you got 25, 30 million people, but they're still you know um, large and up and coming cities. Um, the city that I was in was actually one of those emerging first tier cities called Hangzhou. It's about an hour outside of Shanghai by high speed train, and uh, they. Um, had many more incentives than you would find in a Shanghai or Beijing to attract local and foreign businesses to set up shop there. And not just incentives to attract businesses, but also incentives to attract talent. So like recent graduates from colleges, whether it's foreign or domestic, could get certain subsidies and a certain set of money from the government just by coming there and working there for one to three years. And so um, you find uh, a lot more support uh, in these second emerging first-tier cities than you would in these uh, first-tier cities. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely a division of labor between what happens at these provincial, city, and district levels. And so when you decide on a region and then you decide on a city, now you got to decide which district within that city. And so that same kind of setup where I was talking about certain cities will have more policies to attract more companies, it's the same thing for a district. All of these districts are also competing with each other. And so for example, let's take that same city that I was just talking about, Hangzhou, that I was in. So there's 10 districts in that city. Um, I was actually stationed in the largest district, both in terms of GDP and land. Um, that's where Alibaba's headquartered, if uh, the listeners are familiar with that company. And... Uh, that particular district had um, some policies that were different from some of the other districts that were in that area. And the, that district specifically focused on like biotech, uh, artificial intelligence, um, uh, the Internet of Things, 
software development with Alibaba and some other big companies there. And so uh, each district will kind of focus on its own area and will have policies specific uh, to helping those types of companies. You Yuhong, the, that district was about 3 million people, and they were uh, really big into e-commerce. And so there were a lot of e-commerce policies that were very preferential to certain types of businesses. Um, and uh, a lot of e-commerce companies would set up there, and Alibaba was a big part of that. So anyway, the point is, is that depending on what your business is, um, you're going to want to make sure you select the right, I would suggest second or emerging first tier city, close to one of those economic regions. And then I would suggest you know, doing your homework and finding out which district might be better. And it, and it is possible um, that several of the districts focus on certain specific industries that, you know, that you're in. And, and for example, uh, two of the districts in Hangzhou, both were focused on biotech. And so in that kind of a situation, um, you know, if you were a biotech firm, you'd have an advantage because now you could play the two districts against each other and see which one gives you the better deal. Now, not to say that you need to, you know, just go with whichever one gives you the better deal, but because um, there's a lot more than just money in terms of when you're setting up in a district. Maybe one district wants to attract a, you as a foreign firm there or a domestic firm as well and give you more money, but maybe their infrastructure is less. Uh, they have maybe, um, you know, less freeways and and maybe they're a little farther away from the port or other things like that. So there's a lot of factors that still go into it. But uh, nonetheless, it's just good to know that how these districts work. And and also, uh, sorry to wax long here, but um, you know it's important to note that a lot of these districts and the way the government works, in my opinion, although it's run by the Communist Party, uh, you know it has these Chinese characteristics that they would call it, but. I, I think it's really just some capitalistic principles because what they're trying to do is they have all these indicators they track, like how many people they have that are, you know, have masters or and above, so graduate level uh, talent that are in their district, how many patents that are applied for in their district and granted, you know, their tax revenue, how many new businesses were set, all these different indicators that that the government leaders above them are ranking how well they're doing in their area. And so a lot of these um, government leaders are just trying to take these tax dollars and then throw them back into uh, private uh, enterprises to try to stimulate their growth for their area so they can get promoted and move on. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm sure some leaders there are doing it for the good of the people as well, but that's kind of, you know, it's, very much a meritocracy in terms of how they can promote it and where they go next. Um, and so, um, I don't know, that, I think that just might be kind of helpful for you to see and understand that why they do some of the things they do and why they're throwing incentives out. Because a lot of these incentives and things that they throw out, I mean, they're not taking a piece of the company. They're not, um, you know, taking any kind of shares like that. They're, they're just trying to grease the wheels so they can get the right talent to where they need to be because if they don't have the right companies, they're not going to grow in the way in which they want to and achieve their goals. So, um, But I'll, I'll stop there and let you ask any more questions that you might have. That's fascinating, James. It really is uh, interesting to think about the meritocracy in the Communist Party. And Fred and I have been reading about the, about the government enforcing taxes much more than it used to. And we sometimes get clients who say, well, you know, how big of a deal is it? Or I've been doing this for years and, and uh, you know, I've, I've been paying these people as independent contractors. It hasn't hit me yet. You know, why do you think it's going to change? And, and we say, we know that we know the reality, which is that it's changing. But your inside, uh, your inside information about why the enforcement uh, is going up, not, it's not necessarily top down. It's a 
it's very interesting to think about it in terms of, uh, of individual rewards, uh, you know, people trying to get ahead on, on the communist platform. Fascinating. Uh, so can you describe for us uh, what it's like to work inside the Chinese government? I mean, it just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm picturing you in your suit and tie walking in with, uh, with a thousand other people in the morning or 10,000 other people in the morning into a government building. You know, what, what did you learn about the Chinese bureaucracy and how are you treated as a foreigner? I, w- I want to hear all of that. Sure. Um, so, you know, just typical, you, yeah, you're going to walk into a really big building with lots of other people. Um, and, uh, you'll have your own little cubicle in which you, you, you just sit and do your meetings at, but a couple, maybe those kinds of details, you, I don't know if everyone's that, that interested in, but I think what you, maybe a couple things you might be able to take away, or at least that I took away from working inside the Chinese government was, uh, they are incredibly good at long-term planning. Um, and I think, the, there's several reasons for this. Um, one, there's just not a lot of internal debate at lower levels. Um, you know, whatever the top leader says, they typically will, you know, follow. There's not a lot of pushback unless there's something obvious, you know, then they'll try to find a way to get to the leader so no one loses face. But for the most part, there's, um, not a lot of debate. So in other words, there's a lot of unity, uh, behind what's said. And, and, uh, so that's one thing that I think helps these long-term plans go because, uh, you know, when someone sets their mind on a goal, uh, there's not a lot of obstacles to move it. People just kind of, you know, fall in behind it. Um, another reason why I think they're really good at long-term planning, I mean, obviously there's there's uh, fallbacks to, the, to what I just said, but uh, nonetheless, that's uh, the approach, at least it seemed like from my perspective. But um, another reason is uh, the leaders don't change very frequently. A leader may be in power for quite some time. Now, it is true that at lower levels, you know, they do a lot of cross-training and people jump around from different bureaus and departments to, if they're up-and-coming leader, to, you know, to give them lots of experience. That that is true. But, I mean, uh, in terms of, you know, the, the higher-level leaders like the, the general secretaries, um, you know, they, they might be in a position of power for quite some time, whereas, you know, in Western, more democratic uh, countries, you, you know, you have elections, people change out quite frequently. Um, and, uh, you know, every time someone changes, they kind of throw away everybody's plans before. Uh, but in, in China, um, you know, people are staying in power a little longer. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're able to execute more on those plans. And like I said before, um, there's not a lot of, uh, uh, you know, attacking previous leaders, or unless there was some corruption involved, um, there's usually quite a bit of unity on, on, with the successor um, and uh, with what they were trying to accomplish. And so, uh, you know, the long-term plans uh, really seem to to do well in China. So they're very good at long-term planning. That was something that I, I took away. Um, another another takeaway is that. Uh, the Chinese government is incredibly organized. Um, I, when I was, uh, you know, entering, I, I was what I didn't know what to expect, to be honest. Um, but um, with the amount of, for example, performance reviews that I myself had, and the amount of meetings that I had to attend, and the documents that were prepared before the meetings, and how they tied into the long-term plans, and how um, 
everybody uh, seemed to be on the same page. And uh, I was, I was just uh, amazed at how uh, organized all of the meetings were and their goals were and objectives. Were. It was, it, it was, it was interesting. Now, I, I wouldn't say there was a whole lot of creativity going on because there wasn't a whole lot of debate. But the being able to execute on these uh, on on these long term plans that they had was uh, phenomenal. That's something um, that I took away. But in terms of how I was treated, you know, I, I definitely think there was some uh, some people that were skeptical of me, and you know, that might have thought, you know, who is this guy? He's American. Is he a spy? <laughs> you know, I, I I can only imagine what a lot of them are thinking. Of course, they would never tell me because Chinese people, for the most part, are incredibly polite and wouldn't want to say anything that would make me lose face or something, but um, but I think over time uh, they I gained their trust and and uh, you know I think less people were maybe suspicious that way of me and some of the ideas that I would have they were more willing to try and do. But um, uh, uh, on a personal note, I you know I was very different from them. I'm a patriotic American. I, I value uh, a lot of uh, freedom and I am religious, you know, and, and for my Chinese colleagues, you know, they're, uh, they're part of the communist party and, and not religious, at least for them, you know, if you're a member of the communist party, they don't really have a religion. And, and so you'd think that, you know, we would really butt heads a lot and, uh, wouldn't be able to work together, but it, it didn't, that wasn't the case. Um, for the most part, uh, um, I was able to develop really, Really good relationships with everybody I worked with, um, you know. I and I just one quick story that I think is fascinating. Um, so I'm I'm uh, like I mentioned, I'm a religious person, and I try to keep the Ten Commandments, and one of them is to keep the Sabbath day holy. And I remember one particular uh, um, instance where. Uh, there was a meeting called on Sunday. Oh, and by the way, that's another thing that I learned by working in the Chinese government is they work constantly, um, especially the higher up leaders. And um, the leader that I'm going to tell you about in just a second, I, I don't think he took a weekend for like uh, three months to six months. I don't think he even had a weekend off. He and it was and and every time I had to leave late or something like that, I'd always turn around and see that top floor and see and his office light was always on. Um, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's times it wasn't on, but it just seemed like he was always there, always working. And a lot of these higher level leaders, they just give everything to their job. I, I was I was stunned at the work ethic in a government job that doesn't pay that much. Anyway, so. Um, yeah, so this meeting was called uh, on on a Sunday, and I'm actually there on a Saturday trying to finish something up. And I got the text that I need to go to this important meeting, and uh, you know, and I'm trying to figure out uh, how should I handle this because you know, when I took this job, I, I just I committed to myself that I would not compromise in any way who I am as a person and what I value and what I think is important, um, regardless of pressure or anything else like that. And, and, you know, so this, this moment comes and, uh, on Sunday I try not to work as the 10 commandments state. And so I, I went up to this guy's office and I still remember walking down the hall because this guy kind of had a temper. He was known for, um, uh, having uh, a hot head. And uh, so I didn't know how he was going to take this, um, 
because uh, you know the trade war wasn't exactly um, good for for Chinese business at the time, and and here comes this American trying to get off of this really important meeting. And so anyway, so I'm, I go all the way to the top floor, I'm walking down the hall and the offices just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger until I finally get to this guy's office. I, I knock on the door and suppose, and once again on Saturday, he's still there. He buzzes me in. I go in, I sit down, I said, Hey, um, you know, I, I, I have this commitment to God and my family on Sundays and I just try to do service and, and not work. And it's kind of my part of my beliefs. And I appreciate it if I could, um, not attend this meeting. And uh, here's my suggestions for the meeting though. And so it's something kind of like that. And he, and he looked at me and, um, I think he was kind of surprised, but, uh, was incredibly polite. He said, no problem, please, please take off. And I said, thank you. And I, and I left and I, I just thought that was it. And then I think, uh, the next day a colleague texted me on the phone or a tech, uh, sent me a text and said, um, that he had chewed out everybody in the meeting because I guess he thought their ideas were bad or something. I don't know, but he chewed them all out. And then he said, but he, the, the colleague told me, but he praised you. And he said, you were, you had really good ideas and, and, that, and, uh, just, um, talked about me for a little bit. And, you know, and I just thought, oh, that was, that was interesting. You know, the one guy that didn't go to the meeting, um, uh, that was, you know, trying to follow his beliefs that they don't believe in or support. Um, and I, I just, you know, and that was typical of my experience. Uh, although I was very different than them and thought differently in a lot of ways, they always seemed to be very respectful of how I approached uh, life and how I approached things. And, and uh, I never felt that I was ever asked to do anything that conflicted with my, with my values. And it, it was just a good experience for, for me and my family. James, listening to you talk about your experiences in the Chinese government really takes me back to my own time in China, especially the first couple of years that I spent there when I was working for the for the Foreign Service. And number one, dealing um, very um, almost on a daily basis with with different Chinese government offices, but also working in a in an environment that was different, of course, in many ways, but also um, bureaucratic in, in, in its own way. When, when you talked about the level of planning that went into activities, uh, I, I have to, to concur with that. I was actually quite surprised and impressed, really, by uh, the attention to detail, uh, how much thought would go into preparing for meetings, even, even at relatively low levels, um, the, the way in which officials uh, and, and your staff would prepare to, to meet with, with someone from the consulate was, was quite noticeable. And also going um, along the lines of what you described, there was that, that unity of purpose, that the, there was a consistency in the message that, that was um, re- remarkable. Uh, and going back to the beginning of your your um, uh, your comments when you were we were talking about you know going to work. I think it might have been Jonathan. He said you know going going to work and your in your suit and tie. I remember my very first meeting with a Chinese official. We were driving in the in the car. Um, to, to, we were we were on our way. We got a call from from this uh, office and they they said, "Listen, um, it's it's really hot today." 
So we just want to make sure that we are all dressed informally. You know, we, we don't want anyone to be to be embarrassed. And of course, all of us were dressed up in suits. And but of course, you know, we didn't want to make them feel uncomfortable. So here we are, you know, taking off our jackets and taking off our neckties and rolling up our sleeves. And I'm really glad we did because it was it was uh, quite hot. But um, it was my my first um, exposure to to that certain um, informality in in some regards. Uh, obviously, in others, it was actually very formal. But I, I do remember, um, and and for the most part, being pleasantly surprised that I could get away with with not wearing a a jacket and the torrid uh, South China summer. But anyway, um, turning uh, t- turning back to to our conversation uh, about China. As we continue on this path of, of, of seemingly increasing tension between the United States and perhaps more broadly the, uh, the, the the world community and China, what are some of the factors that continue to draw foreign businesses to China? And, and what is your take on how that will continue to play out over the coming years? Okay, so another good question. Um, you know, I think... Um, there's going to be plenty of opportunities and draws for foreign business going forward uh, for several reasons. Um, Right now, a lot of companies have been disrupted because of the trade war as well as COVID. And so people are trying to diversify their supply chains and get some of that outside of China. And so you're seeing somewhat of an exodus of, you know, uh, foreign companies, talent, um, capital, etc., and uh, China is going to want to balance that somehow. They're going to want to try to either attract that talent back or attract new investments to come in. And so, with you know, with this, well, just basically they try to stop the hemorrhaging, right? And they're going to try to um, fill uh, these gaps with other investments. And so, I think you're going to see. Um, policies that I've never even heard about pop up at the district level, the city level, at the provincial level that are going to try to attract companies that fit the bill. And so I think there's definitely going to be some draws for foreign businesses that want to take advantage of this um, need China has to keep capital and uh, and and you know attract the, the best kind of companies. So that's definitely going to be there. Um, but with that said, I would. I would also say, you know, we it's it's important for any company to diversify their portfolio, and that's just sound business practice. And uh, you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. Um, and so, you know, um, you'll just whether you decide to expand in China, enter China, I think should be handled very objectively. Shouldn't be mesmerized by the size of the market, but you should factor all of the different things that are important for your business see where your ROI falls and how you could manage the risks. And if it makes sense, then that's great. Um, then you can follow a similar approach that I had mentioned in terms of finding the economic region, the right second to first emerging or first first uh, emerging first year city, and then finding the right district for your business and getting the policies and incentives that are related to your industry, making sure that that will help grease the wheels a little bit as you have a soft, so you have a softer landing in China. Um, but uh, at the same time, um, you know, you're going to want to make sure you're 
uh, diversified and you don't have all of your eggs in in the china basket because uh, the trade war has disrupted things COVID's disrupted things and who knows what's next right so i just want to be wise in how you how you decide what you do and in addition i mean we could you could throw in the political arguments there, right? It depends on what kind of technology your company has and how you feel about uh, those uh, debates. Um, so you just have to weigh all of that and, you know, make a decision that you feel is best for for you, your company, and, and uh, um, you know, what you feel is right. So uh, now um, – but going back to some of the draws and opportunities that I think will be in China, um, I think you'll just you'll see a lot more industries that are currently closed opening, um, because like I mentioned, you you see this exodus, to, uh, for lack of a better word, out of China. Um, they're going to in order to keep the companies or attract them back or attract new ones, they have to find new ways to do so. And there's a lot of industries that are currently closed to foreign investors. And I think those will start to open gradually or maybe more quickly, depending on China's need and how much they need capital inside their country. And uh, I think there's two examples worth noting. Um, one is uh, the, the JP Morgan case where China gave the nod for the first fully foreign-owned futures business. Um, that's huge. Uh, Tip, it's previously been closed and now it's open at least to one foreign firm and that's uh, that's big news uh, in addition also in the financial industry which is one that's been very highly regulated and somewhat closed to foreigners american express uh their jv they got final approval to launch operations in china that's the first foreign credit card i believe uh, having to having the chance to uh expand in china so um i think we're seeing some evidence of things opening up. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's necessarily the pressure from Donald Trump saying you got to open up more. I think there's that will play a part of it. But I think it's more so they just they realize that if they're going to be able to fill the void of what's been created from the trade war and the coronavirus and whatever's going to come next, that they need to make some reforms internally so they can keep that uh, inflow of talent and capital coming in uh otherwise it's going to go other places and so i'm, I'm sure china's going to try to compete and but at the same time um there's going to be other opportunities in the southeast asian market and uh you just want to be wise in which one you select and how much you invest in each one by weighing your risks and just doing those things you know you should do so uh, maybe i'll stop there and see if you have any other questions james we've had uh a great time speaking with you today, learning from you. Uh, your insider's view has been fascinating and uh, sure we'd love to have you on again in the future to talk more about uh, about what you're up to and what you're seeing uh, in terms of China and other global developments. Um, we always like to end our podcast with a question asking our guests what you've been reading or listening to or watching that would be interesting to our listeners. This could be something about China, about Asia, about international affairs generally. It could be something entirely off the wall. So, um, so what do you have for us? Well, thanks again for having me, Jonathan and Fred. Um, it's been a pleasure. Be happy to join you again anytime. Um, in terms of what uh, I've been listening to and and what's what might be interesting to you, um, well, first, The Economist, they have a pretty good uh, Chinese-English dual-language version of an app. Um, I think you can get it on the Google Play Store. 
and it's the economist version with actual Chinese characters. It's called like Shanglun, like a you know kind of business discussion, and it basically takes a lot of the economist articles and kind of condenses them so they're more like five minute reads and uh, they have it uh, you can either listen to it via audio or you can read it so they're a little briefer and they have them in English and Chinese and so that's that's been a very valuable resource for me um, over the past year to uh, and they and because it's in Chinese they kind of focus on a lot of more China related articles or because they have it also in Chinese they focus on more China related stuff and so uh, it's a it's a good one in order to kind of get a good macro view on, on what's going on I'd recommend that uh, I'd also you know your country's local Chamber of Commerce um, the Chamber of Commerce associations that they have in China US has a lot of uh, Chamber of Commerce associations in the south and Shanghai and Beijing um, you know subscribing to their newsletters and their updates I think is important that's always been helpful to kind of get the, the latest and greatest of what's going on um, uh, you know, I, I subscribe to the uh, U.S. China Business Council. I think what they produce is really good. They have a lot of um, good articles themselves, and they pull in a lot of uh, other articles and information from other sources and kind of can summarize that for you if you could subscribe to them. Uh, those are very helpful. You can pick and choose which topics are most interesting to you. They do just about everything from, you know, um, just doing business in China to law, policy, trade, industry updates, etc. So I think uh, the U.S.-China Business Council is a good place to subscribe um, to their newsletter and, and, and visit their site. Um, something that you may not know or do that has been helpful for me is just finding like a, uh, a foreign marketing firm in China. Uh, and maybe, I mean, there are big ones there, but um, maybe even finding some kind of smaller niche ones. Uh, I found a pretty good one called Nanjing Marketing Group. And they, so they're foreigners that started a marketing firm there in China. And, uh, you know, they'll, most of these marketing firms have some form of a newsletter that they produce in English because they're a foreign marketing firm. They have locals that work for them, but they're trying to help the foreign companies learn how to market to the Chinese. And so what's nice about newsletters coming from smaller niche companies like this is that, you know, they're typically very close to the consumer um, and close to those social media channels and what Chinese people are saying and um, what the new technologies are and apps that people like. And, you know, they just, they hit all sorts of different types of consumer products and, and uh, just, you know, reading through their occasional newsletter is fascinating and good because you're you're getting a lot of stuff that you wouldn't get from the economist or the wall street journal you're you're uh, getting more local um feedback and reactions to what's taking place in the marketplace and that can be um, also very valuable um, just to get that kind of information um, so i would recommend subscribing to a group like that uh and uh yeah, and I, and, I, and I reason why I say a local foreign firm is because uh, Chinese is super hard. It's not an easy language to learn. And I find whenever I try to just read the news myself in Chinese, even though I've been there 10 years, I've, I've an undergrad in Chinese, and uh, I feel like I'm still 
still learning a lot. And I spend way too much time, unless it's for language study, uh, trying to read through articles than when I could just quickly glance through, uh, you know, some of these English newsletters much, much quicker. So I'd recommend finding a, a local firm there that uh, produces it in English to save you time. James, that is great advice all around. Appreciate those. Uh, that definitely will help me. I, I'm like you. I've been studying Chinese for 20 years and I still feel like I'm learning. I, I still feel like I'm at the beginning. I'm always learning, but I definitely feel like I, I am on the, the early side of the curve. Um, Fred, what about you? What do you have to recommend for us today? Well, I recently got called out by a friend regarding one of my recommendations. He said, listen, what I didn't get what the connection was between your recommendation on the topic. And I did explain that we don't uh, always uh, connect the, the topic we're discussing with the recommendations. But today, given that we were uh, talking about China and that there are certainly many, many books I've read on the, uh, on the topic and, and many, many resources that I, that I could recommend, I thought I, I, I should try to, to, to stick to, to, to the topic. And that got me thinking, um, about what specifically to highlight. And I, I've decided to go with a bit of an oldie, but it's one of the most uh, significant reads that I've made regarding China and definitely in, impacted the way that I looked at China. Uh, I read it sort of halfway through through my time in, in, in the country. And the the more the time that goes on, the more, the more I realize how, how valuable that, um, exposure to a different way of thinking, um, to my, to my, well, exposure to that way of thinking, uh, how valuable that was. So the book is the China fantasy by James Mann. And it's very likely or that, that one or two of you have, have, have read it, but it was, the first time that, well, I, I guess not the first time, but it was one of the clearest manifestations of a of doubt with the the idea that 10, 15 years was uh, pretty much accepted as gospel, that as China continued to engage economically with the rest of the world, that uh, openness and democracy would, would inevitably follow. This book was the the first um, the first time that I was confronted with a well argued counter argument, uh, and it it has, in my view, turned out to um, turned out that way. Um, so I know that James Mann has has written uh, other books since, but I, I this was definitely a, an instrumental uh, book for for my own. Uh, China education. So I'll, I'll, I'll recommend that. What about you, Jonathan? I also chose uh, a book that was apropos of our topic today. This was called The Ugly Chinaman and the Crisis of Chinese Culture. It's a book that was published originally in 1992. The author's name is Bo Yang. And he uh, grew up in mainland China, exited when the Kuomintang left um, and then he was kicked out of the Kuomintang in Taiwan as well for being too harsh a critic. Um, and it's, uh, it's written, it's a, basically a series of essays or conversations that he had uh, that were put into a book format and then translated into English. And uh, it's, uh, it's based off of the same uh, 
same genre as The Ugly American that was published in 1958 that kind of took a hard look at why the U.S. diplomatic corps was failing in Southeast Asia, you know, what made what, what the bad things about the culture, right? And so certainly I don't feel comfortable as an outsider critiquing uh, Chinese culture, Chinese people at all on the way they think or live or do business. Um, I have my own thoughts and I try to keep them to myself for the most part, but I'm very interested in the way that Boyang uh, describes what, what he sees as uh, issues with, uh, with Chinese culture generally. He says, you know, something like China's, China's had thousands of years of civilization, yet we're still, we still fight with each other, right? You put three, three Chinese men in a, in a room together and they'll have three different opinions and they'll, they'll end up hating each other at the end of the conversation. And so um, I'm not saying that that is gospel, but it's interesting since this was from essays and conversations he had in the 1980s, um, that a lot of what he's saying still seems very relevant to the way China is projecting itself on the international stage. And so I, I recommend that uh, for any of you who are interested in, in getting a better look inside the Chinese psyche. James, we want to thank you again for being with us. We certainly enjoyed it. Uh, looking forward to uh, talking more and, and learning from you as well. And hopefully we can pick your brain in the future. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Jonathan. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue to discuss developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.